Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. He was an American attorney, political advisor, served as a special counsel to President Richard Nixon back in the 60s and 70s. He was once known as Nixon's hatchet man. He gained notoriety at the height of the Watergate scandal for being named one of the Watergate Seven. Slate Magazine writer David Plotz said Colson was Nixon's hard man, the evil genius of an evil administration. Colson wrote personally, he said that uh, he was valuable to the president because he was willing to be ruthless in getting things done. Nixon's White House chief of staff described Colson as the president's hitman. Eventually, he would spend time in federal prison for his role in the Watergate scandal. And as I was thinking about this, it occurred to me that there's probably people who don't know what the Watergate scandal is anymore. Uh, we've had one or two scandals since then that have taken the air out of the room. So just if you don't remember or weren't alive or haven't got there in history class yet... It was a major scandal back in our country back in the uh, early 70s with the administration of of President Nixon. Uh, Nixon's administration was trying to cover up its involvement in the break-in of the Democratic National Committee headquarters in Washington known as the Watergate office building. And Colson was instrumental in that cover-up. However, something happened to Chuck Colson as he was going through this whole ordeal. Something dramatic happened, not just going to prison. Chuck Colson met Jesus, and his life was changed. In his uh, autobiography, he tells the story this way. He said, I visited Tom Phillips, the president of the Raytheon Company, at his home outside of Boston. I'd represented Raytheon before going to the White House, and I was about to start again. But I visited for another reason as well. I knew Tom had become a Christian, and he seemed so different. I wanted to ask him what had happened. That night, he read to me from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, particularly a chapter about the great sin that is pride. A proud man is always walking through life, looking down on other people and other things, said Lewis. As a result, he cannot see something above himself immeasurably superior. It was God. Tom that night told me about encountering Christ in his own life. He didn't realize it, but I was in the depths of deep despair over Watergate, watching the president I had helped for four years flounder in office. I'd also heard that I might become the target of the investigation as well. In short, my world was collapsing. That night, as Tom was telling me about Jesus, I listened attentively but didn't let my own need, or or didn't let in on my own need. When he offered to pray, I thanked him but said, no, I'd see him sometime after I read C.S. Lewis' book. When When I got in the car that night, I couldn't drive it out of the driveway. An ex-Marine captain, a White House tough guy, I was crying too hard, calling out to God. I didn't know what to say. I just knew I needed Jesus, and he came into my life. Before he died, Colson said he'd been reflecting as of late on the things that God had done over that time. 
He said that God orchestrates the lives of his children to accomplish his good purposes. The truth is that uppermost in my mind today is that God isn't finished. As long as we're alive, he's at work in our lives. We can live lives of obedience in any field because God providentially arranges the circumstances of our lives to achieve his objectives. It's been a long time since the dark days of Watergate. But Colson said he's still astounded that God would take someone who was infamous in the Watergate scandal, soon to be a, con a convicted felon, take him into his family, and then order his steps in the way that he has with me. God touched me at that moment in Tom Phillips' driveway, and when he said this 30 years later, his love and kindness touch and astound me still. You know, Colson's time in prison gave him a heart for prisoners. When he got out, he founded Prison Fellowship, the world's largest ministry targeted at prisoners, ex-convicts, and their families. Colson may have been involved in a lot of political sin and scandal, but Jesus changed all that. And the last part of Chuck Colson's life may have been shaped by the first part, but the outcome was radically different because of his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Today I want us to revisit Rahab one last time as we go through this book of Joshua. And as we do, we're going to see that she's another trophy of God's grace. And we will see her become part of the family of God's people. If you got your Bibles, we're going to finish up the book of, or the uh, chapter 6 of the book of Joshua today, beginning in verse 22. I would invite you, if you're able, to stand with me as I read these words from Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua laid an oath on them at the time saying, Curse before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Father, I thank you for a promise that was kept for Joshua and his willingness to protect this woman and her family. I thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to those who believe as you delivered Rahab even from the judgment of her community. Father, I pray that as we consider these words today that you might remind us of your faithfulness and you might call us to walk in holiness as we learn not to repeat the mistakes of our past. Bless us now as we think of these words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. Be seated. So last week we ended with what had to be a stunning picture of the city of Jericho. 
the marching has happened. Somebody asked me a question. They asked last week, do you think the nation went all the way around or was it like a group? And, and I really think the, the army was so big, it probably went all the way around. I think it was probably so large that the city was encompassed at any given time. But there had been marching, the trumpets had been blown, the shouts have happened, and the wall has fallen down on itself. And at that moment, the nation of Israel followed the instructions of the Lord and the evil and paganism of the city of Jericho came to a dramatic, remarkable, stunning conclusion. But in the middle of all of that destruction and all of that carnage, there was one part of the wall that remained. That one small section that contained the dwelling of Rahab and her family. One small window where that scarlet cord dangled in the breeze. The breeze that was colored with the smell of fire and battle and destruction. I can only imagine what it must have been like in Rahab's home during those seven days. Uh, just put yourself in, in that place where we're told at the beginning of chapter 6 that the city is shut up inside and out. Nobody's coming. Nobody's going. There is anxiety in the city. It is, it is unknown what is going to happen in that community. Here is Rahab. She has got a strategic place as her home is built into the wall. We know there is a window because there is a scarlet cord tied onto the window. And we can watch. Can you imagine the sight as Rahab is in her house inside the wall and she could look out the window and she could see that army marching in circles around the city in silence. You imagine what that must have looked like for her to be in that, in that position looking down and seeing hundreds of thousands of troops circling the city in silence. Just the sound of those seven trumpets blowing. I can't imagine what that must have been like, wondering each and every single day what in the world is about to happen. Wondering in the back of her mind is, are they going to keep their promise? Are they going to rescue us when the battle happens? Imagine Rahab praying to a God that she barely knew that he would spare her from the judgment that was coming. And then watching on that seventh day, because, you know, six days in a row, you, you figure out what's happening. You can watch. There goes the Ark of the Covenant. There goes the trumpets playing. Here comes the army, and that's the end of it. She doesn't see the Ark or the trumpets coming again. But on that seventh day, something changes. She established a pattern. Six days, the same thing happened. On the seventh day, the Ark and the trumpeters make another pass. This is different. The ark and the trumpeters make another pass. The ark and the trumpeters make another pass. The ark and the trumpeters make another pass. What's going on? Something is new. Something has changed. And then hearing that shout, that awful shout of the soldiers who had marched in silence, to hear that shout and then to hear the terrible roar of that city falling down on itself. And when the dust settled, 
looking out that same window and finding that your home is still intact and learning that your home is the only thing that is still intact. And learning in that moment, the God of Israel is faithful. That's life-changing, right? I mean, this, is a, this is a moment that, that she'd never forget, regardless of what happens with Joshua and the army, because we still got an army out here. She knew in that moment that the God of Israel kept his word, the God of Israel was faithful, that the God of Israel did what he said he would do. As we finish our consideration this morning of Rahab, and the broader consideration of Jericho, I want to point out just a few key ideas that stand out in these last few verses. And the first one is this. Our past commitments should be honored. We see this spelled out in verses 22 through 24. As I was rereading this chapter and preparing for today, my mind movie, because that's how I, that's how I consider these things, my mind movie was creating the scene, and the thing that stuck out to me is that protecting Rahab and her family took a tremendous amount of discipline on the part of the Israelites. Now, to be fair, I've never been involved in hand-to-hand ancient combat. I've never had that experience before. I've never, I've never walked onto the battlefield with that weaponry before, so I personally don't have any experience of what it's like to be involved in hand-to-hand ancient battle. I don't know. But I have watched some movies, and I suspect that it's probably close. I mean, I don't know. It's, a, it's probably a, a good shot, a good effort. And so when I look at what happened here, there is nothing about this scene post-collapse that appears calm, cool, and collected. I don't at that moment see the Israelites who would just, woo, because I know it was a Ric Flair woo that they let out. It had to be. I don't see the Israelites in that moment when the dust settles, them standing around saying, okay, now what? What I see happening, and I think you see it too, is that when the walls fell down and the the dust cleared out enough that they could see that those Israelites drew their weapons and they charged into that mound of destruction to finish the task that God had given them to finish. There was nothing about that that appears cool, calm, and collected. And I can imagine the, 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 the folks of Jericho standing on the inside when suddenly that wall, that thick, terrible wall falls and they are staring face to face with the hand of God's judgment. The text says that each man in the army was able to advance straight ahead into the city. And so you have this picture of these men in close quarters involved in hand-to-hand combat. And let's just be honest, in the, in the heat of that moment, it would have been really easier for some Israelites to look at Jericho's house or, or to look at Rahab's house and say, man, that's a, that's a good scouting location. Let's go there. Let's get rid of the people who were there so that we've got a spot where we can see everything. It had been really easy for that to happen. But that is not what happens. That doesn't happen at all. It would have been easy for Israelite soldiers to see Rahab and her family as just regular old Jerichoites 
that needed to meet the same fate as all those other citizens. And here's the thing. Nobody in Jericho would have been any of the wiser if Rahab and her family had met the same fate as everyone else in that community. It's not like there were Jericho folks that could look around when it was over and say, well, they didn't keep their promises. They didn't do what they said they were going to do. It's been really easy for Rahab and her family to go down the same pathway as everyone else. But who would have known? Well, God would have known. Those other Israelites would have known. And they are not better off knowing that there would be such a disregard for their commitments and the promises that are made. Because in the same way that it matters today, character still mattered then. It mattered that people kept their word. It mattered that people did what they said that they were going to do. And what we see very clearly, very early on in this book is that Joshua is very much a man of character. He's not just some ruthless military general. He is a man who is concerned about what God thinks. He is concerned about his character. He is concerned about doing things the right way. And as God's people, a watching world is paying attention to our commitment to integrity. Even today, we as the church of God's people, we have a responsibility to do the right thing because of our commitment to the Lord and our concern for the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 challenges us as the church today. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. As we work, as we go about our work as the church, as we go about our work of reaching a lost and dying world, the world is watching, and it is important that we keep our conduct honorable. And if we do that, they can try to speak evil against us, but the fact of the matter is, is that our testimony, our character contradicts all of their evil accusations. The problem today, though, is that the church isn't always operating in such a way. We hear far too many times of church leaders involved in scandal. Of course, we understand that church leaders and pastors are still very much at war with the sin in their lives, but there's still no excuse for a lack of integrity and a degradation of decent Christian character. There's a reason that Scripture gives qualifications for Christian leaders like elders and deacons. There's a reason that teachers are held to a stricter judgment. Joshua and the Israelites, they honor their commitment to rescue Rahab and her family, and they welcome them into their family. But that's just one side of the story. They keep their obligations. They keep their commitment. What about Rahab? And this is so important. We need to understand this today. Our past mistakes cannot define us. I bet Rahab had some stories to tell. Probably stories to tell that she couldn't tell in mixed company, if I had to guess. She probably had stories to tell that she was not too proud of being able to tell. In my mind movie, I've pictured Rahab sitting down with the first women's event 
that the people of Israel had. You know, Rahab shows up and all the other women show up from the nation of Israel. And so I, I wonder how that sort of unfolded. You know, the first women's tea after the battle of Jericho. I, I wonder how that went. And I imagine all those prudish Israelite women that have been camping their whole lives, who've been living in obedience to the law, I imagine all these prudish Israelite women and, and meeting Rahab. Rahab's not done a whole lot of camping. She's done a lot of sleeping, but not a lot of camping. Rahab, I imagine as she is sitting in this group of Israelite women trying to figure out how she fits into the story, I'm not sure that any Israelite women had any pearls to clutch, but if they did, I can imagine this is the opportunity for it. Imagine the stories that Rahab had to tell. But here's the thing. That's who Rahab was. That's who she was. When she was in the wall of Jericho, she was very much of the mind of Jericho, but something has changed in Rahab's life because that's not who she is. It's who she was, but it is not who she is. There was no denying her identity. The Bible has told us about her identity. The, 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 her job description has been evident as we have encountered her. It was no secret. I suspect that she even dressed in such a way that made her stand out at first. I suspect that even when she showed up in the nation of Israel, that she did not look like an Israelite. I imagine that she did not fit in with the other Israelite women. But here's what I believe happened. Rahab and her family move in. I bet some of the older Israelite women took her under their wings. I bet some of those older Jewish women showed her how to live. I bet some of those older Jewish women showed her how to dress. I bet some of those older Jewish women showed, taught her and instructed her about the customs and the ways of her new people. Because here's the thing. That's what's supposed to happen. That's how it's supposed to work. The, the older, more mature people of God are supposed to be investing in the younger, more immature people of God. And if I can be very frank, I'm not sure that we as the church today do such a great job in this. I fear that we are too often dependent on the sink or swim discipleship model. I remember when I was a kid, I couldn't swim very good. I'm still not a great swimmer, but I remember that I was in a neighbor's swimming pool, my grandmother's neighbor's swimming pool, and, and it had a deep end, and I was just a little kid, and so I could stand up in the deep end today, but that day I couldn't stand up in the deep end. And I remember that I was on a float, and I fell off that float into the deep end of the swimming pool, and I couldn't, I couldn't swim. Literally, I mean, as a, as a little boy, I were having this, this terrible fear of, of drowning in that moment. And I remember my grandmother, she couldn't swim either, but she was tall. She could have probably stood up. And she was on a float, and she stuck her foot in the water, and I grabbed her foot, and she pulled me up out of the water with her foot. And so I don't care what it was that I grabbed. I remember her pulling me up out of the water with that foot. And could I have figured it out that day? Maybe. But I remember what happened is that my grandmother rescued me from drowning. 
I think when we look at discipleship, too often we use that sink or swim model. We take new believers, we take those who are young in their faith, we throw them in the deep end, and we hope they figure it out. And what do we find that happens over and over and over again is they may swim around for a while, but what happens invariably is that they don't succeed. That sink or swim model is not successful. There is an absolute necessity that older, more mature believers are investing in younger Christians to mentor them and show them how they should live. That was true then, and it's true today. What's beautiful about Rahab is that her past no longer defined her. She would no longer be Rahab the prostitute. She had a new identity a new purpose, a brand new family. God saved her. God rescued her from judgment because God had a plan for Rahab that is stunning. It's actually mind-blowing when you stop and consider this woman. When you think about everything we know about her and then you realize what happens to her, what God does in her life is incredible. Because here's the thing, Rahab's not just a tag-along with the nation. It's not like, oh, we picked up some stragglers in our conquest of Canaan. Now we've got this family that we've got to deal with. It's not like a stray puppy that we found at the, you know, in the in the street that we now got to figure out what to do with. That's not what happens with Rahab. She's not a tag along for the rest of her life. As a matter of fact, we find Rahab takes a primary place in the history of the nation. Matthew's gospel records for us a little bit of Jesus' genealogy. Matthew chapter one, verse five, we read this. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So Rahab married a guy named Salmon, and I don't know if it's Salmon or Salmon. I guess it depends on which part of the country you're from. She marries a guy named Salmon, and they have Boaz. And you're from around here, you think, oh, that's down in Alabama. That's where the shopping used to be. No, that, not that Boaz. This is Boaz, who was the guy that rescued Ruth. And so Ruth's mother-in-law is Rahab. But it keeps going. We, we know from Ruth that you have you have a descendant of, of Obed, who's the father of Jesse, and then Jesse, who's the father of David. And then David's the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Rahab was Boaz's mother. That means that Rahab is right there in the, book, the background of the book of Ruth. And Rahab is Jesse's great-grandmother and King David's great-great-grandmother. This woman who was a prostitute in Jericho had the royal blood of the nation of Israel pumping through her veins. The prostitute that escaped judgment. She she was not just an ancestor of David, But because of that, it means that the royal blood of another son of David was pumping through her veins. Because Rahab gets us to Jesus. Ain't God funny? 
I mean, we get to Joshua and we think, that sure was nice of God to save her. <laughs> no, God saved her and, and had a tremendous plan for her. She didn't go to Israel and carry on her wicked and crazy ways. She goes to Israel and God puts her in a place of primacy in the history of the nation of Israel. Here's the thing. You may want to use your past as an excuse for why you can't do anything today, but I would argue that Rahab is a witness against you. Your past does not have to define you because God can take the worst offenders and then give them brand new purpose in God's kingdom. God took a merciless political operative named Chuck Colson and turned him into a giant for the kingdom in our own generation. God took a filthy prostitute that dwelled in the walls of a pagan city and gave her a prized place in his story. And God can take you with all your messes, all your baggages, all of your histories, and he can put them to work for his glory and for his good. But in order for that to happen, you have to stop dwelling on your failures and come to God and say, what can I do for you? How can I be useful for you? Where can I serve? What's my mission? What's my calling? And what you won't hear is this. You're too much of a mess for me to use. You won't hear that at all. Lastly, our past lessons shouldn't be forgotten. We end the chapter with a simple warning. Joshua curses the city of Jericho, and the smoldering remains of that city are intended to be a warning against the sins and rebellions of the Canaanites. Jericho, in a sense, becomes an offering to the Lord as it is the first fruits of their conquest of the nation. And it is a smoldering, smoking reminder of the fact that God hates sin, God hates idolatry, and those were two things that Jericho was really good at. If Rahab's past did not have to define her future, that only works if we don't revisit the folly of our past. Because here's the thing, we can say, oh, my past is, it doesn't define me. Well, if you don't leave it, it's going to define you. If you don't break from it, it's going to define you. If you don't turn your back from your past and you continue to dwell in it and waller in it, it is going to define you. Rahab makes a break from her past. We can't hold on to the promises that God makes about taking our sins away and separating our sin as the east is from the west if we're going to continue to dwell in it and waller around in it. Because what it means is that we need to stay, from it as, stay far away from it as well. You see, Rahab doesn't go to Israel and open up her old shop again, does she? So pastor doesn't say she does or doesn't, doesn't say what she does for a living. I think we can, we can extrapolate some things here. Rahab doesn't go to Israel and open up Rahab's place again. In fact, if you look at verse 23, the nation takes them, they're careful with her. In verse 23, we're told that they, they put her outside the camp. 
because all the pearl clutching, right? They said, y'all know what she did back in the old city? Y'all know what kind of woman she was? You know where she lived? You know, you know who she hung out with? Let's not bring her into the camp. Let's keep her outside the camp. But we don't get very far before we get to verse 25, and there's a little bit of extra commentary there. And we read in verse 25 that she lived in Israel. And it says, even to this day. So whenever they wrote Joshua, Rahab was still very much a part of the community, still very much part of the, of the nation. There will be a time in Israel's history and in Israel's journey where they would invite her in because of her former ways of life. Because we know the nation of Israel doesn't always get this right. They turn to idolatry and terrible sins as well. But at this time and in this place, the nation is concerned and mindful of holiness. They are concerned about following the Lord. The exception comes up in the very next chapter when they meet this little town called Ai, and they understand there's some very negative consequences for their choice to turn their back on God. If we don't learn from our past mistakes, if we don't learn from the lessons that God has already taught us, then we're setting ourselves up again for significant failure. Joshua was very clear in his curse against Jericho. If anybody ignores God's commands to holiness, it is at their own grave risk. We've heard the old adage that those who don't know their history are destined to do what? Repeat it. There's a lot of truth to that. But I think it's even more significant when we're talking about our own moral failures. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 11 says this, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. You know, the Bible's not worried about if we're ready for lunch yet, right? This is one of those gross verses, but it's so true. It's so true. You know, we encounter this story it's all kinds of things we take away from it. But I think one of the things that we have to walk away from this story of Jericho and Rahab and the nation of Israel in Joshua chapter 6 is the simple principle. God is faithful. God is faithful. Who is God faithful to? Well, God is faithful to his own glory. That's so important. Because if God wasn't faithful to his own glory, we could go pursue whatever it is that God is concerned with. God is faithful to his own glory, and God will not stand for idolatry. God will not stand for anything that attempts to substitute. And the Canaanites were experts at idolatry, and they suffered judgment for it as a result. So we know God is faithful to his own glory. We also know God is faithful to his own word. His promises make a difference. What he says counts for something. His word is good and trustworthy. The Bible says that God's word will never return in vain. It always does what it says. You can count on everything that he says and believe him when he says what he can do. In our daily Bible reading plan, we just finished the book of Revelation, and it is filled with all of God's promises for, for the future. And I believe that God is going to cash those checks one day. Those are not just words that are, lift, that are left out there. Maybe they'll come true. Maybe they won't come true. I believe God is going to be faithful to everything that he has said, every word that he has spoken. And God is faithful to us. You never have to doubt that. 
I suspect that Rahab probably got a little nervous when that army started marching. I suspect she got a little nervous when she heard the rumble of the walls. But God proved then, and he continues to prove to us, he is faithful to those who serve him. He is faithful to his children. You never have to doubt that. If you are in Christ today, you were adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High. You are part of his family, and God is faithful to you as a result. And he wants to use you regardless of what you've been rescued from. And ultimately, God is faithful to his own justice. What's that mean? Well, that means that sin requires punishment, that sin has consequences that are attached to it. You say, well, that's terrifying. It is if you don't know Jesus. Because in Christ, the consequences of sin have been doled out. The punishment for sin has been paid. It's been satisfied and taken care of at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God's demand for justice is settled at the cross for all those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so today you have this incredible offer that's set before you. You say, you know, I'm still stuck in my sin. I'm still stuck in my rebellion and I'm still stuck in my folly. But the offer of scripture today is that God has already satisfied the demands against your sin by what happened to his son on the cross. Your sin has been paid for. The punishment has been taken care of. God's wrath has been satisfied because God is faithful to his own justice. But at the same time, God does that. He's patient. And he is patient with each of us, giving us an opportunity to repent and turn to faith in Christ. He gave Jericho 400 years to seek him out. Again, we're talking low bar here. They didn't have to be theology majors. They didn't have to build a seminary in Jericho. They didn't have to send missionaries out of Jericho. All they had to do was find the God of Israel. Find that God, as Rahab did. She put her faith and trust in the God of Israel, and God saved her. Listen to me. If you haven't given your life to Christ today, God is being patient with you. But we read today, there is a day when that patience is exhausted. We aren't guaranteed tomorrow. And so if you've not given your life to Christ today, I would encourage you today to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'd love to have a conversation with you about that during our invitation or after church. I'd love to tell you what it means to follow Jesus today and that you would find salvation in Christ. I invite you to join me as we pray together. Father, I thank you for your word and your faithfulness to your word. I thank you, God, that you are trustworthy and that you keep all your promises. Father, I pray that if there's any here today that are still in their sin and not trusted Jesus as Savior, that today would be a day in which they give their life to Christ. I pray today, Father, that if there's some here today who are dwelling in their own past, they're wallowing around in the mistakes of yesterday, and they think that they, they're too far gone, God, that they think that they can't be used, that they think that they're worthless to you. 
God, I thank you that in Christ our past does not define us. It certainly shapes us. It informs our futures, but it does not define our usefulness for God's kingdom. And so I pray, Father, that as we wrestle with our mistakes of yesterday, that we would know that you've got good things for us tomorrow if we will but follow you. And God, may we be faithful to keep our commitments, our promises, that a watching world would see us as a church concerned about character and integrity. That we would have a consistent, profound witness to a lost and dying world. God, we love you and we love your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us today. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.